All right, good morning, guys. Oh, let's try again. Good morning, guys. Much better. My name's Steve. I'm the lead pastor, and uh, we are continuing our study in the book of James. So let's go ahead and grab your Bibles and go over to James chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 1011, 1011 to James chapter 2. Last week, we we started looking at this passage, um, and, and we were looking at our our human inclination to draw circles of favor, right? So, so, that, so that when we look at people, um, they, we perceive them as either being inside the circle of our favor, people that we are attracted to, people that we give advantage to, people that we want to be near and want to be near us, or, or there are people outside the circle um, that, that we uh, don't, right? And, and, and so James calls being inside that circle when, when we show partiality. We're partial toward those people for whatever reason. We, we like the way they look. We, we, we like how they make us feel. We, we like the impression that they give us. And we find the people that stand in our disfavor, those are the people who receive our prejudice. So this inclination to value and disvalue, to show partiality and prejudice, is an inclination to value people based on their outward appearances. We attribute value to some people more than others. And in fact, we rob value from some people based on certain impressions we have of them. We, we all do this because we all kind of metaphorically wear a set of lenses through which we perceive the world. Right? And those lenses were, were shaped from your upbringing. They were shaped from your family of origin. They were shaped from your culture and your subculture. They were shaped from the influences that you had on your life. And, and, and it's so normal to see life in this way that we actually don't even know we're wearing them. We don't know that there are lenses that are separating us from reality that are, in fact, causing us to interpret reality in a way that's not true, right? We wear these lenses, and, and because we do, we're very, very quick to create assessments of people. And, and there are very, obviously, very clear lines that we do that on, right? When someone shows up and they're clearly wealthy, they're well-dressed, they're well-groomed, they're very stylish, we tend to attribute greater value to those people. When, when someone shows up um, in a certain ethnic group or from, they, they demonstrate that they have a certain level of education or, or they have a certain level of fame or influence, or, or, right? I mean, it just influences how we see those people and how we see people influences how we value people because we see some people as closer to the center of the circle and the ones that are closest to the center of the circle are the ones that we value and the one, those that are outside are are the ones that we don't. So here's the thing. that, that This is kind of the takeaway from last week. I wanted to get to this baseline. We, we all struggle with partiality and prejudice. We all create first impressions based on how someone looks, based on our experience and background. We may draw those circles differently because of our different experiences, but we all have an inclination to do so. We all have a tendency to attribute certain people more value and, and to um, take away certain value from others, to be partial toward some and, and prejudiced toward others. And, and, and so at the end of last week, um, we kind of wrestled with what do we do with this, right? Because here's the thing. Uh, a lot of times people are like, well, what am I supposed to do? Just feel guilty about it? Right? Yeah, okay, we live in a history of, of racism and classism and all this sort of stuff. And, and, and yes, I am a white male. What am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to have white guilt? Am I supposed to have male guilt? What good is that? And, and my response to that is, is nobody wants your guilt. Because guilt never solved anything. Guilt never fixed anything. 
And, and, and honestly, there is, that is so far from the biblical answer. Here's the thing. The gospel doesn't call us to guilt. It calls us to be transformed by grace. And the gospel gives us the most powerful tool available to attack these prejudicial impulses of our heart. To, to undo this broken inclination we have to draw circles of favor. Because the gospel gives us a new set of glasses through which we are to see the world. Not made up of our personal experiences, not made up of how we've been treated or how we've been told people are, or based on our family of origin or our, our place in the country where we're at. It was, it's a whole new set of glasses that completely changes how we see the world. So let's take a look at James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to read this out loud, follow along in your Bibles as I read it, and then we're going to dig into this. All right, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, so this passage, as I, we kind of broke down last week, it is an exhortation followed by um, an example of prejudice, uh, followed up by, by really three ways that we can overcome our heart's inclination to, to do this. Now, last week we looked at the exhortation and the example, right? So the exhortation is a command. Do not show partiality and hold the faith in our Lord Jesus, in, in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, right? Don't, don't try simultaneously to hold intention, a desire to receive grace from God, and, and at the same time not extend that grace to others. Don't, don't, don't say to God, I am a charity case for grace, I need your grace, and then turn around and look at people and say, you're more valuable than you. You're in my circle, you're out of my circle, you, you are warm and inviting and you are threatening and outside and, and I will give advantages to you and I will not give advantages to you. I will, I will contribute uh, favor to you, but I will withhold favor from you. Don't, don't do that, right? Don't show partiality and hold the faith. That word partiality in the Greek literally means receiving of the face. So it's talking about external appearances. Don't look at someone's wealth. Don't look at someone's background. Don't look at someone's clothing. Don't look at someone's color of the skin and make prejudicial or 
or, or, or privilege-oriented value-based judgments about them. Don't establish their value based on their external appearance. It's not, you know, I like what I see, so I show favor. I dislike what I see, so I show prejudice. You can't, you can't do that, right? And then he gives an example. He gives an example. Two men come into the gathering of the church, one a rich man and one a, a poor man. One is dressed in fine clothes. The other is dressed in shabby clothes. Uh, that word for fine literally means bright or, or brilliant or, or, or shining, right? And the idea there is this is somebody who comes in and catches your eye. This is somebody that when they come in, you're like, that's a well-dressed man. That obviously is a highly educated man. That is a man who knows how to, how to speak the English language well. That is somebody who, who clearly has power and influence and wealth. He is somebody I want to be near. He's somebody in my circle because he's bright and shining and brilliant. And then you have somebody else comes in and they're wearing shabby clothes. The word shabby speaks of, of clothing that is dirty or soiled. It's unpleasant. So I look at the one who's bright and shining, and I'm like, man, that's, that's in my circle. That's where I want to be. That's who I want to be by. That's the pr- I'm going to give them an open invitation to, to know me, and I'm going to move toward them. And then this person over here that I find somewhat repulsive, I'm repulsed by them for whatever reason. They're outside my circle of favor. They, I remove favor from them. I show one bias, and I show the other prejudice. I show favoritism to one and, and prejudice to the other. So that temptation is ever-present to draw that circle, to favor the things we like and show prejudice to the things that we find offensive or off-putting or alienating. And when we do that, what we are doing is we are measuring the worth of people. We're measuring the worth of people uh, by, by the values that shape our lenses, how we perceive the world. And most of us aren't even aware of the lens we're, we're wearing. Because what we do just seems natural to what we do. The way we see the world just seems natural to how we see the world because it's how my family saw the world. It's how my community saw the world. It's how my friends saw the world. We all kind of shared the same way of seeing the world. And because of that, I just thought it was the only way of seeing the world. Where we measure the worth of some and devalue the the worth of others based on race, wealth, influence, education, these external factors. And, And what James is saying, you guys, is that doing this is absolutely incompatible with growing in the gospel of grace. We cannot harbor a spirit of favoritism and prejudice while simultaneously growing in grace. We cannot receive grace from God and grow in that grace without, while we are simultaneously refusing to give that grace, that undeserved, unmerited favor to others by measuring their worth, moving toward some and not toward others. Doing this is deadly, deadly to your experience of grace. All right, so at the end of last week, one of the things we established, the challenge is that we all do it. I want this to be a safe place where we can at least admit the reality. We all do this. We all make first impressions. We all make value judgments. We all draw a circle in which some are in and some are out. We just draw these circles differently. We, we have different ways of approaching it um, based on our cultural influences, family experiences, personal biases. And James is saying, okay, yeah, this is the natural inclination of your broken heart, but you can't be content with that. You can't make excuses for that. You can't just say this is the way life is. You can't because you cannot grow in grace while simultaneously not extending grace 
You can't be a charity case of grace and at the same time make value judgments of people and others saying some are worthy of, of your favor and attention and others aren't. If you try to do this, it makes you what James calls a double-minded man. In James 1, he describes the double-minded man, the one, the one who is trying to live in, he wants to live for and in the blessings of the kingdom of God, but he wants to live by the principles of the kingdom of man. He, he wants all the blessings of grace, but he doesn't want to have to be humbled to learn how to extend and live in that grace. He's a double-minded man, and when we are double-minded people, it makes us, he says, unstable in all of our ways. It creates an instability in our spiritual life, an instability in our emotional well-being, an instability in our social framework of relationships. It makes us unstable and unreliable in all of our ways. So that means we need to go to war with this impulse in our heart. We cannot be content with the fact that this is, um, just say, well, this is the way it's always been. This is how we all are. So that's just, no, we, we, need, to, we, need, we need to attack this. And, and James gives us a powerful way to do that. It's not by identifying all of your prejudices. That is a never-ending onion that will never be completely peeled back. It's not by identifying all the discrete behaviors. The way we do this is by intentionally putting on the glasses of the gospel, the lenses of the gospel, by intentionally looking at the world around us, looking at the people around us through the gospel of grace instead of through the lenses of our personal values, experiences, and fears. Now, James gives us three ways to do this. The first is here in verses 2 through 4. In fact, it's right at the end of the illustration. So I'm going to read the illustration again. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in the good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? And become judges with evil thoughts? Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and made yourself judges with evil thoughts? See, when we put on the lenses of the gospel, we see people through grace. Which means we're going to come to see them as God sees them, not as how we, through our experience, have seen them, or how our cultural group sees them, or our family sees them. We're going to see them through grace, which means we're going to grow in our ability to see them as God sees them. And what that means is it's going to increase our ability to see people's glory, and it's going to increase our ability to see people's ruin. Theologians use this phrase to describe us, glorious ruin. And that's because we have a glory that is not intrinsic to our behavior, it's intrinsic to our creation. Here's the thing, when we look at people, we look at people and we assess their glory. And one of our first impressions about people, one of the first things we do is kind of formulate a value-based opinion about their weightiness, their importance, whether they're important to us, important to the world, whether we should, we should move toward them or away from them. We, we, make, we make an assessment of their worth. We make an assessment of their glory. And James makes that very clear that when we do that, we actually are making ourselves evil judges. Because what we're trying to do is actually sit in the seat of God. Because God is the only one that can actually assess someone's glory. 
God, the creator of humanity, is the only one who can look at that humanity and assess the value, the worth, and the weightiness of the people that make up that humanity. When we try to make those judgments, we become judges with evil thoughts. We're putting ourselves in the very seat of God. We make distinctions, James says. We draw circles. You're weightier. You're more important. You're more valuable than you. You're in you're out, and we assign worth based on personal bias. All right, this doesn't work, and it actually undercuts grace, makes us judges with evil hearts. All right, it's not by accident that James ties the concept of glory to Jesus in verse 1, right? My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Listen, there's only one Lord of glory, and it's not you, and it's not me, It's not my job to assess the glory, the value, the weightiness of an individual. There's only one who can actually see the true worth of the humans that he has created, and that is the God who has created them. See, we were created in the image of God. Think about that for a minute. We were created in the image of God. We are alone in all of creation with that honor. God created all things, and as a good artist, um, there is a piece of Him in everything He creates, right? When we see the stars of the heaven, it speaks to us of the glory of God. When we see a beautiful sunset, it speaks to us to the beauty of God. When we, when we see the cycling of seasons, we, we see the orderliness and structure and, and wisdom of God. We see God in all of creation, but there is nothing in all of creation like humanity. Because men and women were created with the imprint of their Maker. He created them in His very image. And that means there is no human without glory. If we could see each other as we truly are, we would be absolutely floored by the beauty and the magnificence and the dignity. This means that the poorest and the sickest and the most despised human is still a creature of immeasurable glory because they bear the actual stamp of God. They were created in the image of the very glory, the essence of God. And while we're all creatures who bear the stamp of glory, there is also not a single human that hasn't had that image of beauty marred by sin. While we were created in the image of God and bear the glorious imprint of God, each one of us has moved our own way apart from God. We have built a prideful, self-glorious kingdom to ourselves. We have been vainglorious in trying to lift up our own name and create our own kingdom. We, we have been selfish in our purposes. We haven't moved in love. We have moved in, in selfish manipulation. We use people instead of love people. We, we, we grab what we can keep and try to get more. It's all about us. We have ruined the image of God with our sin, with our pride, with our self-glory, with our jealousy, with our fear. See, listen, the gospel, when when we wear the lens of the gospel, it allows us, as we see people around us, to see the glorious ruin and to see both the beauty and to mourn the loss. It allows us to see the glory in those that we are tempted to despise and diminish as shabby dirty or unworthy or unimportant. It allows us to to see in them something beautiful. 
and it allows us to see the ruin in those that we are tempted to worship, those that we see as bright and shining and brilliant, the ones we want to hold up on a pedestal and, and, and we hope to become more like and, and we hope that they will like us, right? It, it allows us to see, so it humbles us from our view of pride and it humbles us from our view of superiority. It allows us to see in the least of these the glory and in the highest of these the ruin that we are all people created in the image of God with the dignity of that creation desperately in need of grace. So the first step of in, in dealing with the prejudicial impulses of our heart is to put on the lens of the gospel and, and in doing so, refuse to see people by their surface appearance. We're still going to do it. You're still going to have, you're still going to find yourself creating very quick, impulsive, like value-based judgments. You're, you're still going to find yourself moving towards some and moving away from others. But you have the choice in the midst of, of what is automatic in your heart of intervening and saying, no, I am not going to settle on that as the final value. I will choose to see the glory in those that I want to diminish. I will choose to put on the glasses and see the image of God in those that I want to devalue or, or to think they're insignificant. And I can choose to see the ruin and the need of those that I am tempted to uh, uh, um, lift up as an idol, that I want to become more like. I can choose to put on the glasses, to pause in the midst of that process and remind myself this is someone who bears the very image of God. And this is someone who has been ruined by sin desperately, deeply in need of grace. And this allows us then to, to reapproach individuals, right? People that we interact with in our cul-de-sacs, in our neighborhoods, the corners uh, in the city as we're driving through, the people in our workplaces. It allows us to reapproach how we perceive our, our, um, our heroes, the people that in the past we've wanted to lift up and magnify all of their glory and minimize all of their ruin. It allows us to, to look at our heritage, the culture that we've inherited from our fathers and our fathers' fathers. We can see both the glory and the ruin in, in what we have received. It allows us to look at the systems that we've inherited and the systems we're part of creating and see both the glorious impulse of trying to be like God but also the ruinous impulse of trying to pervert it, to make my own kingdom for my own glory, for my own ends. It allows me to see the glorious ruin. The second way that we attack the prejudice of our heart is found in verses 4 through 7. Take a look at verses 4 through 7. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges of evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? I think as we look at, at, at the scope of, of James's argument here, what we see is, is that we actually have a comparison of two ways of seeing and engaging power. So when we talk about power, Power is simply the way we get things done. Power is not a bad thing. And, and wanting to have power is not a bad thing. We all crave power because we all want to have the ability to get things done. What we need to recognize, though, is there are people who have more power than others. 
That means that they can choose to get things done or not get things done. They can get the things done they want done, right? And there are people with less power who desperately want some things to change in their lives, but they're powerless to affect the change because they don't have the resources or the clout because they have been minimized by a structure that ultimately removes personal power. Power is a way of getting things done. And, and, and what we see here is a comparison, right? Because in the beginning, he, he lays out, man, the poor man, the one you're dishonoring, right? This one who, who you see in, as in poverty, he is rich in faith, and he is an heir of the kingdom. He has a power you don't recognize and the world does not esteem. That poor man who is a follower of Christ, who has been clothed in the glory of Christ, who is being remade into the image of Christ, he bears the authority of Christ. The world looks at power. See, the gospel says power flows from the glory of God for the flourishing of life. See, the God, God is a God of power. When God exercises his power, though, when we see God doing the most powerful thing he's ever done, life flourishes. When God exercises his power, we're blessed, right? When Jesus came to the earth, when God exercised his power of recreation, of redeeming and restoring, when we see him flexing his muscles, what do we see happen? We don't see people disempowered. We don't see people made less. We see them lifted up. We see a universal flourishing of life. Power was given to us to steward for the flourishing of life around us. We were created to steward the power entrusted to us, our ability to get things done, so that all of life might flourish. But the world sees power as a way that I can flourish. The world perverts power so that its use is no longer for the universal flourishing of humanity. It is for the individual flourishing of my own glory and power and kingdom. My power flows from my glory for my good. It is about keeping what I have and getting more. It is about enriching the people in my circle of approval at the expense of those who aren't. That's how the world perceives power. James says, man, when you see that poor believer, you should see them as they truly are. God has made them rich in faith, and they are heirs of the kingdom of God. Their worth isn't measured by dollars. Their power isn't measured by worldly influence. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6.3 that believers will judge the very angels of God. That's power. There is not a single believer without an amazing influence of power. It's just a power that this world does not esteem or recognize. When the world sees the poor, the world sees people who can offer us nothing and need much, which is why we put them in the outer part of our circle. Because when we draw them near to us, they impoverish us. They require resources from us and energy from us and an exercise of our power for their good. And they have nothing to return to us. They can't enrich our, they can't make us more popular. They can't make us more famous. They can't, they can't increase the reach of our influence. They can't make our platform bigger. They can't do that for us. And so what we do is we tend to see them as charity cases. I will come in and I'll do something good for you and then step out and leave you in the outer circle. That, 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 that calms my guilt but it doesn't improve your status. The world sees 
those in poverty as people without dignity or influence, people who can be ignored, silenced, and even exploited. And here's the thing, and this is what we need to admit. You can't put somebody outside of your circle of influence without exploiting them for your good. You cannot put people outside of your circle of influence. You can't hold prejudice toward people without exploiting them in some way to increase the people in your circle. Poor people are exploited. If you look at human history, it's a long, long story of those without power being exploited by those with power. It's a long and very well-documented story because it is a human heart problem, not a historical problem. The poor are exploited by the rich all the time. If you are rich, you can manipulate power. That's, that's what he says. They don't, aren't they the ones that drag you into court? Aren't they the ones that exercise their power to minimize yours? Don't they, according to their wealth and their privilege, use the systems and the structures of the world around them to increase their kingdom and diminish yours? Yes, that's what the rich do. I think we need to admit that there are different kinds of richness. That there is an economy that goes beyond the the monetary economy around us. That there is a, a, a kind of richness that pervades American history, that pervades the American experience. That there are actually, I think, three very clear areas of economy that have been used exploitively throughout human history and specifically American history. And that would be the economy of money and the economy of gender and the economy of race. For the first 400 years of American history, America was run by white men who were landholders. And every policy they put in place and, and everything they did created a circle in which they were enriched. White men with money. It was a system designed to increase the reach of their power while protecting them from the threats against that power. It was, by its nature, exploitative. The currency of power, money, race, and gender. All right, I, I really struggled with how to illustrate this. I had so many illustrations, and some of them I didn't think hit hard enough, and some of them were a little, maybe a little too, um, a little too cutting. So I, I settled on this. I'm going to tell you a little story to illustrate what I'm talking about. In 1955, there's a 21-year-old woman named Carolyn Bryant Dunham. You've probably never heard of her, but you have probably heard about the storm of power that rose up around her because this 21-year-old woman found herself in the middle of a, a firestorm of power. Her parents owned a corner store, and she worked there for them. She was married to a man named Roy Bryant, a man that she later divorced, citing his abusive tendencies. He was physically and emotionally abusive, so she ended up divorcing him. But at this point in the story, she's 21, and she's married to this man, and she's working in her parents' store. And then on August 28, 1955, 
a 14-year-old African-American boy named Emmett Till walked into that store. We don't know exactly what happened in that store. That, that's up for debate. There were observers who said that he wolf-whistled at Carolyn, that he um, was aggressive toward her, whistling at her. She later, uh, in a private session with uh, the prosecuting attorney of a, of a case, said that Emmett Till grabbed her inappropriately, chased her behind the counter, made sexually suggestive comments and threats to her. We don't know exactly what happened that day in that store. We do know two days later, Roy and his half-brother kidnapped Emmett. And I'm not going to go into the detail of what they did to this 14-year-old boy. But they tortured this boy. They mutilated this boy. They killed this boy. They tied him to an engine of a cotton gin and threw him into a river. Roy and his brother didn't hide this. They told people what they did. They went to trial for it. And in that trial, they sat in front of a jury of 12 white men who acquitted them based on the evidence they were released so mrs bryant dunham spent the next 60 years in silence her parents moved her from place to place keeping her away from journalists and keeping her away from from the police just this year she called a journalist somebody that she was reading and respected and said, I have a story to tell. This happened like a month ago. And she confessed that it didn't happen. That none of it happened. Now what's even more disturbing is that when they asked her what did happen, she didn't remember. More than likely, Emmett, who was down in Mississippi visiting family, he was from a northern area, probably just didn't show the proper southern respect. Maybe he didn't understand that extended eye contact with a white woman would be considered threatening. Maybe he didn't understand that Laughing loudly in a public place around a white woman could be perceived as disrespectful. Maybe there were a thousand other subtle cues that as a 14-year-old boy, he either didn't understand or in that moment, in that moment, he decided to be a boy instead of a black boy. But whatever happened, she took offense. And in taking offense, 
She shared it. You guys, there was clearly an economy of power at play in these events. Emmett was at the bottom. Emmett was powerless. Emmett was unprotected. Emmett and his family had no legal recourse, no political protection. They were completely exposed and completely vulnerable because they were at the bottom. Then there was Caroline. She was richer than Emmett in the economy of power as a white woman. But even she was abused by power, even as she was abusive with her power. I can't imagine what it was like to live with a man like that, a man that would do that to a 14-year-old boy. Who knows what motivated her? Abused and exercising her power to abuse. At the top of the chain was Roy. Roy Bryant. Now, he wasn't physically wealthy. That was not a community of a lot of physical wealth. It was a rural community in Mississippi. This was a guy who didn't have a lot of money, but he had a lot of power. He was rich in the economy of power in that community, and he could exercise that power to do whatever he wanted and be protected from any consequences that would come. And he and his half-brother knew that, and he was desperate to protect his power, and he felt threatened that a 14-year-old African-American boy would possibly not obey the power structure that keeps Roy at the top and him at the bottom. So jealous of his power to protect his fragile sense of ego, and respect, fearful and superior to those below him, he exercised his power. And that event became one of the catalyzing events of the civil rights movement because Emmett's mother chose to bury her son with an open coffin. And the world was invited to see what these men did. And in simply displaying her son in the humiliation of his murder, it challenged white America to find out why they could excuse the behavior of a white man who would do that to a black child. Emmett Till will be in his mid-60s today. I was born just a little over a decade after that. You guys, the gospel empowers us to see the true purpose of power. The true purpose of power is not to build my kingdom protect what I have and get more. The true purpose of power is for the flourishing of human life, for the blessing of everyone that is in the human circle. The purpose of power is to bring blessing, not hoard blessing. Instead of self-protecting, self-promoting, and creating structures that rely on suppressing and silencing others, we are called by the gospel to exercise our power in the dismantling of those abusive and exploitive structures, to refuse to participate, even passively, 
and the advantage I get from being higher on the power structure in a system that is inherently designed to value some and devalue others. James adds an additional motivation to this at the end of these verses. He says, if we don't do this, if we don't do this, if we fall into the exploitive power structures of the world around us, if, if we drag people into court, if we exercise our power at their expense, if we just simply receive the benefits of a structure that passively advantages us while it disadvantages others, if we are more about protecting and promoting our own personal and political ends than we are about living for the good and the flourishing of human life, we blaspheme the honorable name by which we were called. Follower of Christ, we blaspheme the honorable name by which we were called. When we, as those who bear the image of God, refuse to act in a way that honors that image, when we claim the grace of God but refuse to live for the glory of God and instead hoard it and fight for it, we blaspheme the name of God. If we want to dismantle the prejudice in our heart, we need to see the glory in people that is not evident in their station. If we, if we want to, to grow in dismantling the prejudice of our hearts, we, we need to recognize, come to see and identify these power structures in which we live and that surround us daily without being threatened and defensive, without getting afraid, without being like, well, I didn't do anything, that wasn't me, I just inherited this, and, it, and that's fine. But don't be so afraid of admitting that you, adv- you are advantaged in ways that you didn't earn and you're receiving benefits that you can't claim. Let's just have the humility of recognizing the structures exist around us that advantage some and disadvantage others and then by grace start working to bring the universal flourishing of blessing to those who don't have the power to exercise it for themselves, who are disadvantaged by the very same structures that advantage us. Let's, let's just stop being so fragile in our defensiveness and our need to protect ourselves that, that somehow we're afraid we are going to fall farther on the ladder. Let's get off the ladder and realize that we are citizens of the kingdom of God, exercising a power for human flourishing, that our greatest glory is yet to come. It is not in this world. And then finally, let's obey the right law. The royal law of love. I'm going to read verses 8 through 13. It's a really complex section that we're not going to parse out in detail. I'm going to summarize it, but let's go ahead and read it. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails on one point has become guilty of all of it. For he, said, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, don't murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, have you, become, have you not become a transgressor of the law? So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. All right, this is a complex and rich passage. And we're not going to walk through all the details. But what I want, you to remind, I want to remind you of is, is the author, James, the brother of Jesus, is a first century Jewish Christian writing to first century Jewish believers. They all come from a very Jewish mindset. They have all been raised uh, to think about the world through the lens of the law. 
From their, from their childhood up, they have been taught to perceive life through the lens of the law, which, which it reinforced in them a sense that I need to obey to be approved. I need to perform to be worthy, and I need to be worthy to be accepted. And when you are fighting to make yourself worthy, you are going to, by nature, create circles that enhance your glory and diminish the glory of others. What he's saying is we have a new law as believers in Jesus. It is a royal law, a law of liberty, a law of mercy, the law of love. Because the God of mercy gives us grace. Mercy, when God doesn't give us what we deserve. Grace, when he gives us what we could never earn. We have a God who measures us in mercy and rewards us in grace. Think about that. Your place in the kingdom of God is not measured by your personal piety, your ability to succeed, whether or not you are better at all this holiness stuff than somebody else. You are not a better Christian because you are more moral. The measure of maturity in the kingdom of God is humility because it is in humility that we receive grace. God measures us in mercy. And he rewards us in grace. Think about that. God does not love you more when you do better, and he doesn't love you less when you do worse. God is not sitting back with disapproval on his face, waiting for you to somehow earn his approval. He has already extended you mercy. He measures you in mercy, and he has already extended you grace. He, he rewards you in grace. When you let that sink in, when that message really gets to the heart of who you are, man, it gets a whole lot harder to judge people. It gets a whole lot harder to protect your prejudices and your privileges. It gets a whole lot harder to exercise your power for your personal vainglory while you're excluding the benefit and the good of others. Man, it just, it, it makes it harder. You know why? Because you are freed. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. You want to know how to get free from a heart of prejudice? Have a heart undone by grace. You want to know how to get free from your personal prejudices? You want to get, you know how to get free from the fragility of your need to protect structures that enhance your power and disempower? You want to know how to get free? You want to know how to defeat the enemy of prejudice? Be ridiculously loved by a ridiculous God. A God who doesn't measure you by your worth, but attributes a worth to you and then loves you according to it. A God who is absolutely crazy in his commitment to love you, to measure you by mercy, and to reward you in grace. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. God's mercy conquers our prideful hearts. God's mercy undoes our prideful need to build our own kingdoms and establish our own glory to, to be over others and, and to, to jealously crave the experience and the, and, and, and the station of others. God's love humbles our pride. And it's in that humility we find the ability to actually see people instead of measure people. 
to love people instead of needing to judge people. Our ability to move toward people who, who we found previously threatening or alienating and to do it in a way that honors the glory of God within them. And to move away from people that previously we were, we were jealous to get their approval, to jealous to get them to look at us and draw us near because, because we have learned to see their ruin and their need for grace and we no longer put them on a pedestal of idolatry. God humbles our pride and frees our hearts. Mercy triumphs over judgment. We'll start seeing people instead of judging them and we'll start seeing the worth where God sees it instead of where the world sees it. We will stop seeing people and measuring their glory. And man, grace will, will free our heart from the seductive lure of power structures that enhance us at the expense of others. The gospel is the only thing that has the power to free us, to love freely, to work for justice, and to follow Jesus in the way of love. I'm going to close this in our prayer. We're going to share communion, but we'll do that after we take a few moments for reflection. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace, immeasurable, ununderstandable grace, that you measure us by mercy, man. We have a hard time believing that. You see us and you love us, and in mercy, you don't give us what we deserve, and in grace, you reward us with everything we don't. Lord, will you let that ridiculous love humble our hearts and free our pride? Lord, will you, will you give us a vision for true power, the kind of power that, that led Jesus to lay down his life and die so that in the power of the resurrection, all of the world could be recreated. Man, will you fill our vision with that kind of power? Not the kind of power that increases our personal glory and platform and our circle of influence, but the kind of, the kind of power that leads to the flourishing of all humanity where, where we get to follow Jesus. Being freed by love. And being freed into the glory of the new creation. May we be a people undone by grace and remade in mercy. May we be a people that are dismantling the ungodly, abusive, and exploitative power structures that humanity has created because humanity has rejected you and rejected the purpose of power and the glory of your image. Free us into this, Lord. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.